a perfidious inquisitorial lodge to persecute and rob us without any cause. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. As the oft-disputed border between Mexico and Texas, the Rio Grande Valley has long been a place of conflict. While Mexico eventually gave up its claims to lands north of the Rio Grande, the citizens of the valley did not necessarily agree. The Republic of the Rio Grande was just one example of the border skirmishes and struggles for independence by Tejano citizens in the area. From 1859 to 1861, a much less official but far more complex conflict erupted that would come to be known as the Cortina Troubles. But first, what's your favorite Tex-Mex menu item? Um, I prefer a couple of flour tortilla enchiladas smothered in queso with maybe some pico de gallo on top. It's not authentically Mexican in any way, but it's delicious. Well, I like chimichangas. <laughs> I just like to say chimichangas. And it's fried. Fried burrito. What? <laughs> I mean, how much more authentic can you get? How much more Texan and Mexican can you get? Well, it's one of those things. You could put it on a stick and sell it at the <laughs> state fair, and that would be more Texan. I think that's actually an item that is for sale. <laughs> fried ch- is chimichangas on a stick. You know, I'm going to give a shout out to the humble chalupa. <laughs> You're like a flat taco. <laughs> You're difficult to wrangle. You know, I, it, it's a bit like playing the oboe. Very difficult to master. But once you do, people are amazed that you can handle it. The, the, the secret is making sure that your lettuce stays on. It's, I think I know how to a eat chalupa, a chalupa, Jean. A chalupa. Without it lining on the floor. A chalupa is just a lazy taco. <laughs> just a lazy taco. I agree with that. It's a delicious it can't, lazy can't taco. Even, can't even bother to curl. <laughs> Conflict known as the Cortina Troubles revolved around a man named Juan Nepomucino Cortina, the so-called Red Robber of the Rio Grande. While at the time he had no official rank in the governments on either side of the river, the people he led would eventually clash with the United States Army, the Confederate Army, the Texas Rangers, and the militias of both Brownsville and Matamoros. Unlike many of the conflicts in the Rio Grande Valley, the driving force behind the Cortina Troubles was not territory or borders, but social equality and a clash of cultures. The Troubles began in Brownsville, a town located near the mouth of the Rio Grande, where it empties into the Gulf of Mexico, the extreme southern tip of Texas. On July 13, 1859, a young Tejano rancher named Juan Cortina shot town marshal Robert Shears. This attack was not unprovoked. Cortina was trying to defend Tomas Cabrera, one of his former employees, from a severe beating at Shears' hands. Reports indicate that Cabrera was causing a scene in a local coffee shop, so Shears claimed some justification for arresting the man. Cortina felt that Shears was using excessive force, and it wasn't uncommon for Anglos to treat the locals this way. When Cortina demanded to know the reason for the beating, Shears reportedly yelled back, What is it to you, you damn Mexican? In response, Cortina drew his pistol and fired a warning shot. Shears ignored the warning and continued the beating of Cabrera. Cortina then shot Shears in the arm before fleeing across the Rio Grande to Matamoros, Mexico. This was not the defiant act of a brash young man. Who was Juan Cortina, and what brought him into conflict with the Anglos of South Texas? Juan Cortina was 35 years old, and he came from an aristocratic family that owned a great deal of land in the lower Rio Grande Valley, including much of the area surrounding both Brownsville and Matamoros. 
He had served in the Mexican cavalry during the Mexican-American War with the Tamaulipas Brigade, so we knew about combat. After the war, he returned to the Texas side of the border. Though the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo technically solidified the Rio Grande as the border between Mexico and Texas, many former Mexican citizens, including Cortina, continued to live on the north side of the river in much the same way they always had. Cortina was just one of many people who owned land on both sides of the river, though he did consider himself an American citizen. Given his Tejano heritage, however, it is little wonder that his loyalties to the United States were thin, especially given the way that he and his people were treated by their Anglo neighbors. In fact, Cortina moved to the north bank of the Rio Grande specifically to help ensure that the land he owned there would remain in his family's hands. He lived peacefully in the area for more than a decade, but despite his efforts on behalf of the poorer citizens, Anglo-Texan authorities often refused to validate land claims filed by Tejanos. Even a powerful landowner like Cortina was not immune to this abuse. Vast amounts of land were either swindled or outright stolen from the traditional landholders. The records of many valid claims were lost when a ship carrying Texas land commissioners to Galveston foundered off of Matagorda. The law of possession ruled, and that law benefited the Anglo settlers at the expense of the Tejanos. Infuriated by the bureaucratic shenanigans, Cortina made a point of helping poor Mexicans with their disputes with local authorities. This constant conflict made him slowly come to hate a group of judges and attorneys in the Brownsville area. He accused them of stealing land from Mexican Texans using loopholes in the American judicial system that they didn't understand. They being the Mexicans, not the attorneys and judges. This, quote, flock of vampires in the guise of men, he later said, stripped Tejanos of their property, incarcerated, chased, murdered, and hunted them like wild beasts. Even before shooting Shears, Cortina's actions were not without controversy. He was indicted twice on charges of cattle theft. Whether or not he was actually guilty, he became too popular among the poor for those in power to arrest him. His supporters assumed the charges were just a way for local Anglo authorities to harass a man they considered a patriot. As an illustration of just how confusing and chaotic the times were, we only have to look at the enemies Cortina wrote about. Stephen Powers was a lawyer and a former diplomat who'd come to Texas as a soldier under Zachary Taylor. He set up shop in Brownsville as a land agent, specializing in interpreting Tejano claims in favor of Anglo clients. He later got elected judge and was then mayor of Brownsville. Marshall Shears was one of Powers' appointees, but Powers and Cortina were also close friends. Cortina had even helped round up Tejano voters to vote early and vote often for Powers. One local newspaper attributed 90 votes by eight voters to Cortina. That's a pretty good ratio. (laughs) That's LBJ kind of numbers. Adolphus Glavecki was another soldier who'd settled in Brownsville after the war and gotten into local politics. He was a county commissioner and city councilman who'd rustled cattle with Cortina and married one of his cousins. He and Cortina had a falling out when Glavecki and another county judge swindled their way into ranch land belonging to Cortina's aunt and mother. Glavecki was the one to indict Cortina on cattle theft charges, a crime that Glavecki was under indictment for himself. A uh, real stand-up bunch of people. (laughs) Uh, The conflict with Shears was the culmination of this growing frustration. After shooting Shears, Cortina rode out of town with Cabrera in tow. Tensions between the Brownsville authorities and Cortina continued to increase until September 28th, when he raided and occupied the town with somewhere around 40 to 80 men. Cortina rode into Brownsville with the intention of killing his numerous enemies, but the expected conflict did not occur. 
they knew that Cortina was coming and had gone into hiding before he arrived. That didn't stop all the violence, however, and the raiders shot five townspeople, presumably because they were somehow involved in the abuses against Tejanos. Three of the men were Anglos, one was a Tejano deputy, and one was an innocent Mexican cart driver. Despite the fact that the invaders thundered through the streets shouting, Death to the Americans! and Viva Mexico! The violence was not indiscriminate. Neither the general populace of Brownsville nor the buildings were attacked. Perhaps to calm the fears of the citizens of Brownsville, and undoubtedly to clarify his position and cause, Cortina had a proclamation issued that became famous during this occupation. Quote, There is no need of fear. Orderly people and honest citizens are inviolable to us in their persons and interests. Our objects, as you have seen, has been to chastise the villainy of our enemies, which heretofore has gone unpunished. These have connived with each other and formed, so to speak, a perfidious inquisitorial lodge to persecute and rob us without any cause, and for no other crime on our part than that of being Mexican origin, considering us doubtless destitute of those gifts which they themselves do not possess. Mexicans, peace be with you. Good inhabitants of the state of Texas, look on them as brothers and keep in mind that which the Holy Spirit saith, Thou shalt not be the friend of the passionate man, nor join the, thyself to the madman, lest thou learn his mode of work and scandalize thy soul. The statement had the desired effect on the Tejano citizens of the area. The Anglos continued to think of him as a murderous bandit. Cortina and his men held Brownsville for two days, and likely could have held it longer. Instead, they agreed to evacuate at the urging of several influential citizens of nearby Matamoros. Soon after Cortina's departure, 20 men from Brownsville formed a group with the specific purpose of fighting Cortina. They named themselves the Brownsville Tigers and included Mayor Powers and Mifflin Kennedy, a steamship captain and rancher who donated a cannon from one of his ships to the cause. Fearing that there would be reprisals from the American government because of Cortina's actions, the Mexican authorities ordered the Matamoros militia who had a cannon of their own, to join the Brownsville Tigers in confronting the Tejano agitator. This combined force from the two cities soon captured Tomas Cabrera. So just if you're keeping track, the government of Mexico sent the militia of Matamoros to go fight a person who formerly was a member of the militia of Matamoros on behalf of the citizens of a town in the United States. Yes. <laughs> so there's a little bit of a fuzzy line. There is a very the fuzzy line here. <laughs> Capturing Cabrera proved to be their only real success, and the name they chose proved to be more than a little ambitious. Uh, in November, the Brownsville Tigers got news that Cortina was at his mother's home only a few miles west of Brownsville. Led by W.B. Thompson, they immediately attacked the ranch, but were routed by the group who was beginning to be called the Cortinistas. Not only did the Tigers lose the battle, but they also lost their two cannons. Worse, Cortina's success increased his popularity, and more Mexicans flocked to the swelling ranks of his army. Two dozen prisoners from Saltillo even broke out of jail to join Cortina. The Brownsville Tigers weren't ready to give up just yet. Later that November, they were joined by a group of Texas Rangers led by Captain William G. Tobin, who were sent to help quell the unrest. Undaunted by the increased opposition, Cortina demanded that Cabrera be released, threatening to burn Brownsville to the ground if his demands were not met. Instead, the Tigers and the Rangers broke into the jail and lynched Cabrera. Some, some stand-up guys. Yeah, that'll work. 
The next day, to try to live up to his threat, Cortina did lead his forces against the combined force of the militia and rangers. This time it was the Cortinistas' turn to be rebuffed, though they did manage to kill three of the Texans. Wanting to get revenge for these deaths, Ranger Captain Tobin found another cannon, reorganized his men, and launched another attack on Cortina's ranch. They were again easily routed, but this time they did manage to hold on to their cannon. Hey guys, I uh, I found this cannon, so uh, <laughs> let's take care of it, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I got to return this. I in the first fight, I they, have a deposit. Yeah, in the first fight, they actually they didn't even use their cannons. They lost both of them in the mud of the river crossing. Yeah, well, the river. that sounds pretty typical. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Cortina tried more legitimate means of advancing his cause, and in late November issued yet another proclamation requesting that Texas Governor Hardin Runnels intervene to defend the legal rights of Texas citizens of Mexican descent. This request essentially went ignored. Instead of gaining any improvement in the treatment of Tejano citizens, the Cortinistas had only shown themselves to be enough of a threat that additional rangers were dispatched to Brownsville to challenge them. Tobin's rangers had been a mixed bag of recent recruits and rejects, who often caused more trouble than they had prevented. The new group of rangers was led by famous Captain John Rip Ford, and his company was among the elite of the vaunted rangers. Governor Reynolds ordered Ford to take control of the situation, and Ford, in his usual style, immediately headed south with only seven men. The official orders eventually caught up with him. As he made his way south, and word of his mission spread, Rip was joined by dozens of volunteers. When he stopped at Goliad along the way, the citizens showed their support by provisioning his entire company. They were all given fresh choice horses when his troops stopped at the vast ranch south of Corpus Christi, belonging to Mifflin Kennedy's partner, Captain Richard King. Even news of the addition of more rangers did not calm the fears of the citizens of Brownsville, though. In response to the people's complaints and demands, the United States Army also sent a regiment to the area. This unit, led by Major Samuel Heintzelman, reoccupied nearby Fort Brown, which had previously been abandoned. When Ford and his rangers, now 53 men strong, reached the lower valley in early December, a combined force of Army regulars and Tobin's rangers were engaged in combat with Cortina's forces a few miles upriver from Brownsville. Ford immediately ordered his men towards the fight, and the lookout in the Brownsville church raised the alarm. He believed Ford's rangers were Cortina's men launching a surprise attack. The group that reacted to the call to defend the town quickly cheered when they realized the incoming riders were rangers and not Cortinistas. By the time Ford and his men actually got to the fighting, it was almost over. Cortina's forces were defeated, and his mounted men escaped across the Rio Grande into Mexico. Those on foot remained on the Texas side but fled upriver. The Texan forces set up camp rather than following them. The next morning, Ford was ready to follow the Cortinistas, but found that his powder supply had been soaked by rain. So instead, he marched to Fort Brown to join up with Tobin's Rangers and Heinzelman's regulars. At a strategy meeting between the three commanders, Ford took command of all the Rangers and agreed to serve as scouts for the Army units, which is a role that they were perfectly suited to perform. Cortina wisely retreated in the face of this large organized force, even though he was reported to have as many as 400 men under his command. The Cortinistas laid waste to much of the lower valley during their retreat. They destroyed the Neal Ranch and looted the Customs House and Post Office at Edinburgh. Cortina and his men ended their retreat when they occupied Rio Grande City. Most of the citizens fled as they approached, and the Cornistas were free to loot. On December 27, 1859, Heinzelman and his forces caught up to the Cortinistas there. 
The main army advanced straight up the road to the town, while Ford and his rangers slipped around the city to set up a pincher movement to catch Cortina's forces behind them. The Battle of Rio Grande City was fought in a heavy fog that limited the casualties on both sides. Cortina lost 60 of his men and all of their equipment. The rangers suffered only 16 wounded. Cortina was finally decisively beaten. With most of Cortina's forces destroyed or defeated, the first Cortina War was essentially over. The army and rangers maintained their presence in South Texas, while Cortina set himself up as a strongman in northern Tamaulipas around Matamoros. Most of the conflict on the border devolved into a decades-long pattern of small bands on both sides crossing the river to make off with cattle and horses from ranches. Texas tended to blame Cortina for being the ultimate godfather of this enterprise, but he was quick to point out that Texan ranchers did the same. Yeah, I can just imagine, you know, cattle rustlers sneaking across the river to steal cattle from Mexico, bringing them across, and as they're crossing the river, the there's a group of, you know, Mexicans taking cattle from Texas yeah. the other way it's across the river. And they're kind of, said, kind of waving said. at each other. That's actually a famous scene in the book Lonesome Dove, that yeah. that exact thing happened. So it's true. There were several more skirmishes between American forces and the Cordonistas, with two being most prominent. The Battle of La Bolsa occurred in February of 1860 and involved the Texas Rangers, still led by Rip Ford. Cortina and his men attacked the Rangers and tried to capture the Ranchero, a steamboat owned and operated by Mifflin Kennedy and Richard King. The rangers were able to fight off the weakened Cortinistas. Ford and his rangers took the opportunity to cross into Mexico, secure the South Bank, and run Cortina off. Yeah, a little bit out of their jurisdiction, I yeah, think. Well, they're rangers. They're rangers. They yeah. go where they want. <laughs> I think, and I think we've established by this point how muddy, literally, yeah. the, that border is. Yeah, exactly. The Battle of La Mesa truly ended the conflict as the Rangers routed the Cortinistas on March 17, 1860 at La Mesa, Mexico. Cortina retreated into the Burgos Mountains nearby. Ford kept chasing Cortina, but by April, the election of Sam Houston as governor and looming threat of the American Civil War meant that resources could no longer be assigned to south of the border. Ford was ordered to disband his Rangers. Cortina was in no position to capitalize on this withdrawal, though, especially when Colonel Robert E. Lee arrived in the area to restore peace. Lee went so far as to threaten to invade Mexico if necessary. Pressure from both governments kept Cortina in hiding for more than a year. Cortina was not entirely finished causing trouble in the Rio Grande Valley. More than a year later, in May of 1861, he invaded Zapata County and attacked the county seat at Carrizo. By this time, the Civil War was in full swing, and Cortina saw an opportunity to strike at his enemies by aligning himself with the Union. His excursion across the border was short-lived, however, and Cortina was defeated by Confederate captain and prominent Tejano, Santos Benavides, at the Battle of Carrizo. Cortina lost 18 men in the battle, 7 during the fighting, and 11 others who were captured and later hung or shot. Cortina himself managed to retreat back into Mexico unharmed. This short offensive was the beginning and end of the Second Cortina War, and the end of Cortina's military incursions into Texas. It wasn't the end of Cortina's military career, however. In the 1860s, during the French intervention in Mexico, he saw action in several battles, and served as a general and a governor, often self-proclaimed, in Tamaulipas. Cortina was not entirely finished causing trouble on the border, either, but strange things were afoot in the years after the Civil War. In the 1870s, he returned to his land in Matamoros. In a sort of bizarre turn of events and abrupt shifts that seemed to occur frequently in Texas, 
he was asked by the citizens of Brownsville to visit as a guest of honor. They wanted to recognize Cortina for his service fighting the French as well as for the Union. Amazingly, a petition was even created asking that he be pardoned for his crimes because of his service to the Union during the Civil War. It was signed and put forward by 41 residents of the area, including his old frenemy and former mayor, Stephen Powers. But Union's sentiment for the old-time bandito, even in a time when Republicans were in power during the Reconstruction, wasn't going to get Cortina very far. The petition failed in the Texas legislature on its second reading in Congress. In further proof of just how fickle the citizens of the valley could be, later the citizens of Brownsville and the stockmen of the Nueces Strip provided a large monetary contribution to future Mexican President Porfirio Diaz to have Cortina removed from the area. The years after the Civil War saw cattle rustling explode on both sides of the border. King Ranch alone reported 108,000 cattle and 3,300 horses stolen between 1866 and 1869, with a further 33,000 cattle stolen through 1872. All told, $27 million in losses in South Texas were attributed to livestock theft in the decade after the war, and nearly all of it was blamed on Juan Cortina. In July 1875, the contribution of the cattlemen as well as American diplomatic pressure led to the arrest of Cortina under the pretext that he was rustling cattle and he was taken to Mexico City. Finally, this arrest truly ended Cortina's influence in the Rio Grande Valley as he remained in Mexico's capital for almost 20 years until his death in 1894. Although most local Anglos and their government thought of Cortina as nothing more than another bandit and generally painted him as such, he was not entirely driven by greed. From the beginning, Cortina genuinely saw himself as fighting for the rights of Tejano citizens of the Rio Grande Valley, and all of his actions were aimed at advancing this purpose. According to author Robert, <clears throat> according to author Robert Elman, Juan Cortina and his followers were the first socially motivated border bandits, similar to the Garzistas and the Villistas of later generations. It was perhaps this purpose that allowed a man with no official rank in the military or government to rally so many people to his banner. He was able to successfully face off against elements of such organized military forces as the United States Army and the Army of the Confederacy, as well as more irregular forces like the Texas Rangers and militias from two different cities. Cortina was ruthless and unscrupulous, but he was also proud and brave, and never let a fight or a slight pass him by. Today, Juan Cortina remains a popular, though controversial, folk hero to many people along the Rio Grande. He kept coming back and coming back and coming back until they made him go away. If you can imagine a world where Apple stores had no doors, no employees, <laughs> and no walls, and they just left the iPhones laying on a table. Or, or fences, even. Well, that's what I'm saying. This is, is before fences. This is pre-fences. So that's what I'm saying is like, if you could just walk in and just take what you wanted from the store and walk out. I mean, the people, basically, the, the cattle just wandered around where they went. And it yeah. was only by honoring the mark of the brand. Right. And there's this well-defined political border of the Rio Grande, but it really was this big gray area. Yeah, yeah literally. It's, it's, I mean, it's, like geographically, said, it's just a cultural, and it was and all it's, the same. We, we, I mentioned, you know, it's like it's a very muddy border. It's like that's literal. It's a shallow, muddy river that's mm. easily crossed and, and, and for most United of its States, length. I'm in Mexico. I'm in the United <laughs> States. I'm yeah. in Mexico. And to the second longest residents after the Native Americans of that area the Rio Grande was just a river, was just a stream. It was not a border. So that's why, you know, Cortina's mother and his family, they had land on both sides of the river. 
you know, and many of these ranches and farms and, and settlements up there, uh, the, the, the Rincons, they had, uh, land on either side spread out throughout the, all right. the way up to the Nueces. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like around here. It's like when you're driving down the freeway or driving down a road, you don't really, you're not really aware usually of, okay, I'm in Plano, I'm in Allen, I'm in McKinney, you know, it's well, like. even you, when you drive across Texas and you go through counties and you're like, oh, I'm in another county. Yeah. Oh, how about that? Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, unless there's it's an artificial border, and, and we talked about the difficulty of the 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 whole land ownership issue in Nacogdoches when we talked about the Fredonia revolt in the mm-hmm. Edwards colony, and it was much more complicated in in the South because it was settled earlier, and so the land records in some cases went back to the King of Spain directly. And, but record keeping in New Spain was not exactly a going concern. Right. You know, we talked about in the Republic of the Rio Grande, in early Texas, this is a definitive geographic area that is very different from what was Indianola and San Antonio Mm -hmm. and that sort of the more southern eastern part of Texas. And when you get to the deep south in what is the valley, it's its own thing, even right. still today. Right, and and the thing is, is that these Anglo's began coming in, and they they saw this land there, and what the Tejanos and the Mexicans considered using the land and owning the land was very, very different than what the Anglo's considered using it. In a lot of the cases, the Tejanos, there was just like one family on hundreds of thousands of acres of land and they weren't really using it or they may have just been scraping by and the anglos they wanted to cultivate the land or they wanted to bring you can't really cultivate the land that much but they wanted to bring in cattle and they wanted to bring in sheep and they wanted to what they considered use the land and so they really aggressively went after gaining this land and the thing about it is so kings the king family their motto is uh um buy land, never sell. And that's, that was the motto of a lot of these people is get the land, get land is the capital of, of the area. So, yeah, well, and, but that's also Juan Cortina's goal is like he, in his mind, he already had the land, his people, they already had the land. They did not want to give it up. They wanted to keep it. Right. Well, there wasn't, it wasn't for Cortina. It was the context of you're not buying the land. You're just taking the land, yeah, and, and you're setting yourself up in a position of power, and now you're taking advantage of people who can't prove documentation, and you're being back, and it's yet again, we see the flaring of, the, of, of these two mm-hmm. cultures, the, right. the Americano in, invaders, and then you have the Tejano sort of embedded culture, and they're coming to clash over this. Yeah, and they, they sent the, the, the Austin government, the, the Texas government in Austin sent land commissioners down there. They got all these titles, put them in a box to take to Austin, and instead of taking it overland, they took it by ship, and the that that chest of land titles is sitting at the yeah, bottom I'm, of Matagorda Bay today. Yeah, I'm not sure why they thought it was a good idea to take a <laughs> ship from Brownsville well, to Galveston as opposed to overland Austin. Probably Comanches. It was Could still Comanches. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good reason. Well, you know, and and maybe this and is Apaches. A, yeah. There's two things I'd point out about this. One is the geographic distance between, you know, where we're sort of right. used to in Texas, True. and then to get from here to Brownsville is a very long way. Today, today with cars. Okay. And then the second 
part that's kind of interesting that even today in the Valley, you know, there's all this talk on CNN with these fancy pants guys in their suits who sit behind their desk at CNN and want to talk about the, the border in Texas who've never actually been there. There's the border, which is the river and all of that stuff. There's a second border checkpoint even today that is on the edge of the valley yeah. on the other side of the King Ranch. So if you drive to Brownsville, you go through a border check inside of Texas to enter the valley. Mm-hmm. And then once you're in the valley, you go through another checkpoint to enter Mexico. So it's it's kind of interesting yeah. that there's a modern, you know, there's literally a fence and a gate and armed guards on the other side of the valley today. Yeah, and w- what I didn't know is apparently the mouth, the, the, the actual mouth of the Rio Grande where it, quote unquote, empties into the Gulf of Mexico is a sandbar. It is solid ground. You can actually walk from Mexico to Texas on dry land. So it's it's a it, it's even today it is a fuzzy border. It is a it is not this this line. It's not this great big river like the Mississippi River. It looks like that on a map. It would, it would probably have made a lot of things historically easier if the Rio Grande was a half a mile wide and with raging <laughs> yes. rapids. Right. And, and, a, and a steady course, because it constantly changes courses, too, over the over the years. But the other thing, so to go back to Juan Cortina, so he's this is the political and social situation, is these Anglos have come in, they're taking land, they're taking over control, and the, the Tejanos and the Mexicans, they are treating like not even second class citizens, but third class citizens, because they just they just whipped them in that last war. And the abuse on these these people from a lot of corners is is horrific. But the fascinating thing to me is the deeply complex relationships that exist between these characters. Cortina's friend, Steve Powers, is the mayor, and they're in conflict with each other, but they're friends. His brother or cousin-in-law he wants to kill him but they wrestled cattle before well it, it no. reads like a great movie right mifflin kennedy he considered a friend the uh, captain king he respected greatly he considered him a great man and that's the and that's the that's the difficulty of this early time in texas and, and i guess even in modern times mm-hmm. of you know friends and business you know really don't yeah you're friends but then when business comes up then it's business is business and we have to deal with this problem. And I, I can totally see how history has twisted, you know, what Cortina was. And he is a very difficult character because he's an, he's an armed vigilante who's inciting riot, uh, you know, amongst, against the government. But clearly he's, he's been wronged in some way and the system hasn't particularly helped him. He he is he is yet another example of what we see in in our Texas characters, yeah. the complex nature. He is a cattle rustler. He is a murderer. He is um, a terrorist. He's also a hero and a freedom fighter. And he's a patriot for Mexico and Mexicans and Tejanos. He is all of those things. But that's what yeah. we find in every when you kick over a rock on every historical texas figure is they they're people who are complex they have difficult backgrounds but they come here and then they do they take a stand and they do something great and texas is 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 the land of second chances Mm -hmm. but he's on the wrong side of history for a long time right and he and he still is depending on who you ask 
if you ask someone who's from the King family or someone who's, whose longtime family history isn't from Brownsville on the Anglo side, probably he's still considered a, a band a being the great bandito leader. But if you ask, there are, there are, car, there are corridos about him and about his exploits. I like yeah. the word. Bandito. Oh, and, and again, we're, I want a group of people that names themselves after yeah. me. Yeah. We've had the Santanistas. Now we have the Cortinas or Cortinistas, yeah. Elstranistas, Scatinas. I don't know. <laughs> Elstromistas. He, he's, he reminds me, you know, he mentioned Villa, the Villa, Villa Istas, Pancho Villa. We've talked about him in our World War One episode. He, he kind of reminds me a lot of Pancho Villa. And Pancho Villa was all of those things. He was not just a not just a bandito, but he was also not just a revolutionary with high high ideals. He was all of those things, and that's he's yeah. just an incredibly well, complex we, character. So, just to boil it down, the border is muddy and complex, even then, just like the character of Texan heroes. And if you are a listener and you have your family is multi generation Tejanos, Texans of Hispanic descent, you'd like to talk to us. We'd love to talk to you about your family's experiences in Texas through the, the, the through the centuries, really. So throwing that out there to all you, yeah. all you listeners. And if you're a, a cattle rancher and listen to the show yes. and would like to send us some packaged delicious beef, <laughs> you just send us to Twitter and we'll get you an address where yes. you can ship okay. that beautiful side of beef. Delicious. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. We'd like to send out a special thank you to our friend James Abendroth for helping us research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press and find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. anyway.